Second Kings chapter 5. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your scriptures, your revelation to us. Of course, the word is Jesus Christ, but uh, what we know of Christ comes through the scriptures, and we're, we're so grateful for your word. And Father, the, uh, the words that the preacher is about to speak, um, they're just words if your spirit isn't uh, taking them and applying them and preaching them uh, himself to the hearts and minds of all who are gathered here. You, all, you know all the needs that are represented here, uh, various, a wide variety of needs, some for comfort, some for encouragement, some for conviction, um, some for information, some for wisdom. Um, you, you, you know all these needs, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would come and minister your scriptures to each one of us according to our need. And uh, we thank you for that promise in Philippians, and my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Guide our time together now as we continue to worship by attending to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the story we're looking at today in 2 Kings chapter 5 is the story of Naaman uh, and Elisha. Uh, the passage that Glenna read earlier from Luke chapter 4, Jesus referred to Naaman in his, uh, in, when he was talking with the people from his hometown. And we're going to be looking at that story. I love this story. Um, as I love many stories in the Bible, this is one of my favorites. There's, there's a lot here. There's so much scriptural truth that is illustrated in the story of Naaman. Um, this historical account of God and Naaman and Elisha gives us a picture of God. It gives us a picture of God. It reveals and highlights some of God's way with us human beings. And it also points to ways we should respond to him as well as to ways that we should not respond to God. If I could summarize the gist of this sermon in a sentence, I might say that God is glorious and majestic. God is glorious and majestic and not to be trifled with, but he is also gracious and full of mercy. God is glorious and majestic, but also gracious and merciful. So let's look at our story here. Uh, We're going to read the first 19 verses. We're just going to Read through that, and then we'll walk back through it. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. I never know how to pronounce that. I looked it up. You know, I looked it up. How do you pronounce that? And I I got three or four different pronunciations, so I'll probably give all three or four during the course of this message. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. Verse 2. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of a skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Think it over, and you will see that he is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. 
So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God, and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, Wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him. I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but Yahweh. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Ramon, when I bow in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So Elisha said to him, go in peace. All right, let's stop there. Let's go back and look at some of the details, uh, which bring out the color of this story. Um, this series of incidents, this uh, story, took place uh, about 2,800 years ago, 2,800 years ago. But there is great relevance uh, in this story and great application for us for a couple of reasons. For one, the main character is a person that you deal with on a regular basis, and that's the Lord God. The, the Lord is the star of this story, and he's one that you go to on a regular basis. So there's relevance there for us. But then also... The other main character, Naaman, is, is a man. And he has a human nature, and human nature hasn't changed all that much in 2,800 years. And so there's, there's a lot of relevance and a lot of learning that we can take away from this particular story. Let's talk about Naaman first. Uh, verse 1 focuses on Naaman, tells us a little bit about him. He was not an Israelite. He was not an Israelite. He was an Aramean. He was from Aram, or Syria. Um, I don't know how well you can see that map. Probably not too well. Um, but you see the kingdom of Israel is on the left. On the right, up in the upper right-hand corner, is the kingdom of Aram, uh, modern-day Syria. Uh, the town of Damascus is there, uh, the capital of, of Syria, a town that still exists to this day, the town where Paul, the apostle Paul was converted to Christianity. Um, Naaman is from Aram. At this particular time in our story, in Second Kings, Aram is the most local, most active local enemy of Israel or adversary of Israel. Sometimes there is an easy peace between an uneasy, I should say, an uneasy peace between Israel and Aram, but often there is animosity and conflict between Israel and Aram. Um, Aram at this time can be quite the formidable. Foe. Well, what else do we see about Naaman? So he's, he's an enemy in a sense. Look at verse 1. Naaman, he's, he's commander of the army of the king of Aram, so he's 
He's high up, you know, he's powerful. He's in charge of the armed forces. He was a great man in his master's sight. Um, he's highly regarded. He's highly regarded, and we're, we're told that he was a brave warrior. So we get this picture of a powerful man, of a mighty man, of a successful individual. And then we read that last uh, bit there in verse 1, but he had a skin disease. In most translations, he had leprosy. All right, so he had all this greatness, all this uh, prestige, success, fame, if you will, but he also had skin disease. So he was a hero, but he was also mortal, right? Verses 2 and 3 talk us, talk to, tell us about another character, uh, another person in this story, and it's this young servant girl. And we learn about this young servant girl that she is an Israelite serving in Naaman's household. She's a servant to Naaman's wife. And what? how did she come to be there? Well, we learned that there was a raid. Aram raided Israel, and this girl was yanked, taken away from her people, taken away from her land, taken away from her family, taken away from everything that she knows, and she's brought into this foreign household where she will be a servant to the wife of the general, presumably for the rest of her life, Right? Um, and she says, verse 3 is interesting, she says to her mistress, Naaman's wife, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So she is a girl who has been raised to fear the Lord. She is a girl who has recognized, who's, recognizes who the prophet of the Lord is, recognizes that God is a God of healing, and, and apparently... <clears throat> Apparently, she's pointing her master, presumably the one who raided her home, pointing her master to the only solution that will cure him. Says a lot about her character, right? Says a lot about her as an individual. She's acting a lot like a Christian long before Christ came on the scene. So let's, let's just make a couple of observations here real quick. First of all, number one, God is in control everywhere. God is in control everywhere. He's not just the God of Israel. He's in control in Aram. Um, we didn't note in verse 1, but we should, that he, Aram, uh, Naaman was highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Did you note that? The Lord had given victory to Aram. Ultimately, Naaman wasn't su- successful because Naaman was a mighty soldier. He was successful because the Lord had given him victory to Aram. And presumably the victory that the Lord had given to him was victory over God's own people, the Israelites. You know that God was not averse to bringing his people under subjugation of other nations when they went astray. And presumably that's what happened here. Um, Likely those enemies that uh, Naaman gained victory over were Israelites. After all, the the Israelite girl was captured in a raid by the Arameans and now serves in a foreign country. So we need to recognize that God is not just sovereign over, the Israel, over Israel, but he's God over all nations, right? God's control extends to the macro, but it also extends to the micro, all right? He was sovereign over, he was sovereign over countries, but he was also sovereign over individuals. God's control extends to um, the international as well as to the individual, to the peoples as well as to the person. And then a second lesson, taking our cue from this anonymous Israelite girl, is this. Serve God wherever you're at. Serve God wherever you're at. 
Your circumstances may not be desirable. They may be difficult. Nonetheless, serve God in those circumstances. Take the long view of things. If you're a believer, regardless of your circumstances now, your future is incredibly bright. Your eternal future is very bright. God's people are deployed all over the globe, and some assignments are difficult assignments. But these assignments are all temporary. One day Jesus will return, and the eternal reward for believers will be outstanding. Outstanding. This young girl serves as a model for us, especially when we find ourselves in unpleasant circumstances. Well, because of this young girl's uh, knowledge and uh, because of what she communicates to Naaman, Naaman's wife, Naaman ends up before the king of Israel with a letter and a payment for healing. Unfortunately, as we've read, the king of Israel is a bit of a spiritual buffoon. Um, he, he, knows, or he, he knows that God technically is the one who, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, am I God killing and giving life? So he recognizes that God is the one who kills and gives life. He's, he recognizes that God is the one who heals. He confesses that with his mouth, but he doesn't actually believe it. He doesn't actually, he doesn't actually believe it. He doesn't believe that he'll actually see it. Um, to him, the, king, the king's world is politics. It's politics. To him, that's where the real power is at. So he believes that what Naaman asks can't be done. And of course, if your God is politics, that can't be done. The king of Israel and the little girl from Israel display a stark contrast, don't they? The little girl believes that Naaman can be healed and the king doesn't. The little girl believes in the power of God and the king doesn't. He gives lip service to it, but he doesn't really believe in it. The little girl has been raised to believe in the power of God while the king has bought into the idea that politics and human might is king. Who's right? Yeah, the little girl. Okay, good answer. That's good. Someone else who knows that God is the real power is the prophet Elisha. So he sends someone to the king with this message. Look at verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel tore his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. Um, So now look at verse 9. Verse 9 gives us an interesting picture. Um, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So I, I can just, I can almost picture the scene here. Elisha probably doesn't have a uh, mansion. He probably has a, somewhat of a humble abode, I'm guessing. And here we have the commander of the army of Aram and his entourage, his chariots, his servants, his horses, the wealth that he's brought, all this gold and silver and clothes, and they're standing and they're knocking at the door of Elisha's house. Now let's read verses 10 through 12. Then Elisha, Elisha sent him, um, so Naaman's knocking and Elisha sent him a messenger who said, Go wash seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be clean. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh his God, and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Arnabana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned, and he left in a rage. The Verse 11 starts with Naaman getting angry and leaving. And the end of verse 12, 
we find him again. He turned and left in a rage. That's repeated for emphasis. Naaman was furious and was just going to wash his hands of the whole affair because Elisha was not acting according to expectations. He doesn't like at all how Elisha has handled this. And he lodges at least three complaints here. First of all, Elisha didn't come to the door himself. He sent a messenger, and this offends Naaman's pride. Look at verse 11, where it says, I was telling myself he will surely come out. There's another way to translate this in the Hebrew. I was saying to me he will surely come out. He will surely come out to me. Naaman thinks he's a somebody, right? Well, he is a somebody. And he thinks that Elisha should have come out instead of sending a messenger. Second complaint is that he didn't, Elisha didn't handle this the way he should. Naaman's been around healers before in his own country. And Elisha, here's what Elisha should have done. Elisha should have come, come out. He started chanting the name of his God, Yahweh, and he should have started waving his hands. That's how you heal people. Naaman knew that. And Elisha didn't do that. And then his third complaint is that he wants him to go wash in the Jordan River. Well, clearly, the rivers of Damascus are much better than that muddy Jordan. This is ridiculous. Naaman won't have anything of it. He wants to leave. Naaman has a pride problem. I don't know if you've seen that yet or not, but he has a, he has a problem with pride here, as many powerful people often do. They're used to getting their way, and they're used to getting it done in the way they want it done. He's a somebody, and Elisha should have come out to him instead of sending a messenger. But Naaman's servants are able to calm him down. Look at verses 13 to 14. His servants approached and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? So Naaman complied, went down, and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. His skin was restored, etc. He was clean. His servant's argument is pretty simple. If Elisha had asked you to do some difficult, rigorous thing, you would have done it. You would have been up for that. You think... You, you would have followed his instructions to a T. And since he simply asked you to do a very simple thing, why not try it? I mean, what can you possibly lose? So Naaman does it, and he's healed. So let's just observe some more about the ways of God. Number three, God's ways humble our pride. His ways humble our pride. Elisha wouldn't come to Naaman directly. And that offended Naaman. The method he prescribed was silly. Wash seven times in the inferior waters of the Jordan River? That was crazy. How was that going to cure his skin disease? And you know what? Naaman almost didn't do it, right? Two times we read that he got angry and he left. He got angry and he left. And he almost didn't do it because of his pride. And if his pride had won the day, would he have been healed? Audience participation. No, right. No, he wouldn't have been healed. He would have been, he would have been diseased the rest of his life. He would have experienced the physical and psychological trauma of that disease for the rest of his life if he had allowed his pride to rule. Pride will keep you from good things. Pride will keep you from good things. Would you take your Bible and hold your finger there in 2 Kings 5? Just look over at Jeremiah 5.25 real quick. Jeremiah 5.25. Look what the scripture says there. 
Your guilty acts have diverted these things from you. Your sins have withheld my bounty from you. That's what the Lord says. Your sins have withheld my bounty from you. I've memorized this in a different translation. Your sins have kept good from you. That's, that's how I know this verse. Your sins have kept good from you. And pride is one of the greatest sins. And pride, pride will keep good things from you. And pride will keep you from good things. Pride will cause you to miss out. Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. God resists, who does he resist? The proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who receives the grace? It's not the proud. It's not the proud. It's the humble. Pride blocks God's grace. God's ways humble our pride. Fourth lesson is this. God's ways don't always make sense. God's ways don't always make sense. March around the wall of Jericho for seven days and the walls are going to fall down? Sacrifice my son, my only son, through whom I'm supposed to have countless descendants and you want me to sacrifice him before he's even married? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son? The son of man must suffer and be rejected and be killed? God's ways don't always make sense to us. You want me to wash myself in the Jordan seven times? That's how you cure leprosy? God's ways don't always make sense. But then our instructions to our young children don't always make sense to them either, do they? You're saying that broccoli is good for me? You're saying that ice cream for breakfast is a bad thing? I don't understand. You're saying, you're saying you want this guy to poke needles in my arm, and, and that's for my own good? You want me to go to school? You want me to save my money? You want me to give my money? When, I, when our kids don't, can't understand us or don't understand us, what do we want them to do? What? Obey. Yeah, we want them to trust us. We want them to obey anyway. We want them to recognize that, that uh, we're looking out for their good, even when they can't understand our ways. Isn't that what God wants from us too? Sometimes he tells us to do things that doesn't make sense, but he wants us to trust us. There's a song years ago, I don't, for him I think sang, sang it, and the, the lyric went, uh, when, you can't, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. We can't understand what he's doing, nonetheless, trust his heart. When he commands you to, when he asks you to do something, commands you to do something that's difficult, trust him nonetheless. The point is the Lord sometimes asks us to do things that don't make sense, and in such situations it's always best to obey, even when you don't understand. Your understanding is not necessary for you to experience the blessings of obedience. Your understanding is not necessary. All that's necessary is your obedience. That's what's necessary in order to obtain the blessings of obedience. When you don't understand, trust the Lord nonetheless. You have no reason not to. Pastor Ryan has often said, I have never regretted... How do you say that, Pastor Ryan? Yeah, he's never regretted following the Lord, doing what the Lord has asked him to do. A fifth lesson, God often requires particular responses. God often requires particular responses. There was only one way for Naaman to be cleansed of his leprosy, and that was to dip seven times in the Jordan River. 
And in a particular application, there is only one way for you and me to be cleansed of our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul talks about the fact that the Jews demand signs. And the Greeks look for wisdom. Uh, but the way to salvation is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's an offense to Jews who look for signs. And it's offense to Gentiles who look for wisdom. Uh, but that's the only way to be saved is through the cross of Jesus Christ. Naaman could have rejected washing in the Jordan, and he could have washed in the rivers of Damascus a thousand times, and it wouldn't have cleansed him of leprosy. There's only one way for you to be saved, and that's the trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for your sins on the cross. Many, many people believe in evolution, and people don't believe in God, so to them their sins don't matter, they don't really have sins. But that understanding on their part, that misunderstanding on their part, won't help them at the final judgment because those sins they don't think they have are very real to the Lord and are undealt with. Many trust, many trust that they aren't so bad and that their good deeds are going to outweigh their bad deeds. But their good deeds don't cleanse them of their sins. Others think that their devotion to some other God, some other alleged God besides Jesus, will save them, but it won't. The way is prescribed. The way is very specific. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Whoever has Jesus has eternal life. Whoever doesn't have Jesus does not have eternal life. God often requires particular responses. Look at Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is talking here. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. Just because the crowd goes, on, goes down this road doesn't mean it's the right road. It's the road that God prescribes that we need to be looking for. Well, let's move on. Verse 14. Verse 14 has told us about the restoration of Naaman's body. But verses 15 through 19 show us the transformation of Naaman's heart. Look at verses 15 and 19 and notice a change of attitude here. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared... I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him. I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but Yahweh. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Ramon, when I bow in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Can you see that there's been a transformation of his heart? Can you see that he's a new man? Um, He has a changed attitude. He has a changed attitude. He, He refers to himself now as... Your servant, right? He keeps referring to himself as your servant. He's no longer a somebody. To me, I expected Elisha to come out and talk. Instead, it's your servant, your servant, your servant. He was proud in verse 11. Now he's humble. I am your servant. He has a clear confession. He has a clear confession in verse uh, 15. I know, he declares, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. I can tell you confidently that before he was cleansed in the Jordan, that was not his confession. He believed in the gods of Aram. 
if he believed in any gods at all. I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. And that's a confession that not even the majority of Israel is making at this time in the Bible. Elijah and Elisha are prophets on the scene who are battling the worship of many gods all throughout Israel at this time. Many Israelites are worshiping Baal and other gods in addition to, to Yahweh in 2 Kings. In fact, in the first chapter of, of 2 Kings, the king of Israel has fallen and he's not consulting Yahweh, the God of Israel. Instead, he's called, uh, consulting Baalzebub, the God of the Philistines. So Elijah and Elisha are battling in Israel many who are not confessing the Lord God as the one true God. And here we find a non-Israelite confessing God as the one true God. And we read about, I read about many similar remarkable transformations today. I think I've shared this before. I know I've shared it on Wednesday nights before, but I've read various accounts of particularly Muslims um, who are sick, individuals who are sick, have some kind of illness or whatever, and they cannot get healed. They, they consult their doctors or whatever. They consult all kinds of ways in order to get healed, that they, traditional ways to get healed, and they can't get healed. And then a Christian will pray for them, or a church, they'll go to a church, and the church will pray for them, and they're miraculously healed. And as a result, they come to faith in Jesus Christ because they recognize that Jesus has the real power, that Jesus is the one true God. And then their family, their Muslim family, puts pressure on them to recant their faith and come back to the Muslim faith, and they, and they won't do it. Um, many of them won't do it no matter how stiff the penalties are from their family, because they recognize that the power lies with God. They have been transformed not only in their bodies when they were healed, but they've been transformed in their hearts as well, as we see in the case of Naaman. So he has a clear confession, he has a changed attitude, and he has a new sensitivity. He has a new sensitivity. He instantly realizes that now as a devoted follower of God, there's going to be a difficulty in one of his particular duties in Aram. He will have to continue to assist his master in his master's worship of the Aramean god, of one of the Aramean gods, Ramon. And he seeks pardon for that. And he's making it clear to Elisha, when I kneel before Ramon with my master, I'm not bowing my heart to him. <laughs> it's simply one of my duties. Is there pardon for that? And Elisha extends him grace. He says, go in peace. The key here is, do you see how sensitive Naaman is to the Lord's will almost immediately? One writer says, Here is a man who feels the rub between his exclusive allegiance to Yahweh and the expectations of his workplace, and it bothers him. Would that most Israelites at this time were bothered like this. Would that apparent inconsistencies drove them to seek pardon. What we see here then, is a man with his changed attitude, his clear confession, his new sensitivity. We see a man who has been transformed from the inside out by God. This is a supernatural work. It's a supernatural work. It's a work of God. In this chapter, there are two miracles, cleansing from leprosy, the cleansing of the body, but there's also the transformation of the heart. There's conversion. There's regeneration. There's a transformation of the heart. The healing from leprosy and the transformation of the heart. Lesson number six is this. God transforms lives. He transforms lives. 
In the words of Ezekiel, the Spirit has taken Naaman's heart of stone and given him a heart of flesh. He is alive to God. He's alive to God now. When God transforms, he transforms. Reading a, reading a biography of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher in the early to mid-20th century in uh, Wales, England, and also in London. And he talked about a boy uh, in his congregation who was going into great detail as he told his Sunday school teacher about a recent family dinner. And the boy was talking about the gravy and the potatoes and the meat and the cabbage and even the rice pudding. And then he explained it all. He says, my father has been converted. Instead of spending his weekly check on booze, he brought it home to feed his family. God transforms people. And that shows. It gives evidence. Um, another great preacher in England, Charles Spurgeon, uh, was interviewing a, a domestic servant who had professed faith in Jesus Christ. And he kept pressing her. He wanted to know, how does this, how does your... How, how has your conversion expressed itself? How has it changed you? And she thought long and hard about that. And she said, well, I sweep under the mats now. <laughs> In other words, she swept around the mats, but she wouldn't clean the whole floor. That's the, she, it doesn't mean she swept all the dirt under the... I, I had to... Okay. If I have to explain, it's probably not that good. But the idea is that it affected her work. It affected her labor. She was now laboring for the Lord as... God's transforming work leaves evidence in its wake. Is there a person that you think that there's no way that they'll ever become a Christian? They're so sinful, they're so stubborn, they're so selfish, they're so resistant. Don't think that they can never become a Christian. Don't sell Jesus short. It's time to pray and love and mention Jesus to them. It's time to petition the Spirit to work. Okay, there's an epilogue to this story. I want to read through it real quick and then draw, draw one point out of it. Verse 19, middle of verse 19. After Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, we now meet Gehazi. Gehazi, the attendant or servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, My master has let this Aramean Naaman off lightly but by not accepting from him what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and asked, Is everything all right? Gehazi said, It's all right. My master has sent me to say, I have just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them 75 pounds of silver and two changes of clothes. But Naaman insisted, Please accept 150 pounds. He urged Gehazi and then packed 150 pounds of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes. Naaman gave them to two of his young men who carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the gifts from them and stored them in the house. Then he dismissed the men and they left. Gehazi came and stood by his master. Where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha asked him. Your servant didn't go anywhere, he replied. But Elisha questioned him. Wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease, his leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence, diseased, white as snow. This chapter starts with a leprous Aramean. It ends with a leprous Israelite. There's a lot here. Um, there's a... 
one teacher points out that we have here a contrast between a converted pagan in Naaman and a perverted Israelite in Gehazi. Perverted not in a sexual sense, but perverted nonetheless. Gehazi was an Israelite, and more than that, an attendant to the greatest prophet, um, the greatest man of God at that time, Elisha. But his heart was not right. He was close to the man of God, but he was distant from God himself. Naaman's heart, Naaman's heart was suddenly alive, but Gehazi's heart had grown cold and had grown hard. And here's a caution for you. Don't let your heart grow cold. Don't let it become hard. Even in the midst of your Christian routine, you can drift from the Lord. In your work for the Lord, remember to stay close to the Lord of the work. Don't drift from the Lord. Keep attending to the Lord. Keep talking with the Lord. Keep seeking the Lord in all things. Keep surrendering yourself to the Lord. Keep confessing your sins to the Lord. Keep confessing your confidence in the Lord. We can drift. We can drift. Hebrews 2 warns us about drifting, about neglecting our great salvation. It's quite a contrast. Naaman's body was cleansed of leprosy and his heart was transformed as well. Gehazi's body, on the other hand, became as diseased as his heart was. Well, let's wrap up here. God is glorious and majestic and not to be trifled with, but also gracious and full of mercy. We see his grace and mercy with Naaman. We see, though, that he's not to be trifled with in the end result for Gehazi. The lesson for all of us is to continually draw near to God. Uh, I cited James 4, 6 earlier. That verse is at the beginning of a string of wonderful promises, and I just I want to close with just by reading these verses from James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's a great promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Be miserable and mourn and weep for your sins. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Here's another great promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, story of Naaman. We thank you for the transformation, the example of transformation that we have seen, that we uh, see that you wrought in his heart and in his life. And many of us have seen that transformation in our own lives and in the lives of others as well. And we ask that you would continue to do your work of conversion and regeneration. Many of us have people that we are concerned about with regards to their salvation who continue to walk in their ways and ways that are not subservient to you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be more faithful in prayer and in witness uh, to these individuals. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work in the lives of those who don't yet know you in our community and in our homes. Um, We want to see more and more people come to Christ. And, Father, I pray also that you would help us, that you would help all of us to, to, uh, to ever draw close to you, to be on guard against uh, drifting away from you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.